It's a natural disaster, but it's a man-made catastrophe because there were very real instances of political negligence, of corruption over doing their jobs, and of contempt for the people that created this scenario. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. Libya has been mired in conflict for more than a decade. In the wake of the devastating flooding caused by the failure of two dams in Derna, international attention has focused on how years of internal fighting have left much of Libya's vital infrastructure neglected and vulnerable. This week on Babel, I'm joined by Tarek Magrisi to talk about the ongoing conflict in Libya, the interests of international actors in the country, and where things might go in the wake of the Derna flooding. Then I continue the conversation with Will Todman and Leah Hickert discussing how natural disasters challenge governments around the region and how they respond. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Tariq al Magrisi is a senior policy fellow with the Middle East and North Africa team at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Tariq, welcome to Babel. Thank you very much for having me on. Libya slid into civil war more than a decade ago, and it's had competing national authorities for all that time. Why has that continued for so long? Why has political leadership still not consolidated in the country? I'll start with an anecdote, I suppose. After the most recent war on Tripoli, I was speaking with a military man, and he was kind of reflecting to me that Libya is the only conflict he's ever seen where none of the participants have national aspirations. All of the military officers are all incredibly local in their perception of things. You know, they want to be the ruler of their neighborhood, most their city. And I think because... For a lot of the political class and a lot of the elite class, they don't have much of a political ideology. They don't have a vision for what they would like Libya to look like or how they would like to lead it or govern it. Really, what they care about is the access to Libya's oil wealth and massive amounts of corruption. So it's more a kind of very administrative game of how can we access different avenues of the state? How can we dominate and take control over different budgets of the state in order to maximize, firstly, my personal wealth, and then secondly, the number of people that I can put on a payroll, and so therefore will be loyal to me. So despite all the civil wars, despite all the strife, despite a revolution in the country, we have yet to have a political vision or a political movement. It's all just different forms of corruption. But it feels like if you look at other oil states, a country like Iraq, it is the centralization of the oil wealth that allows you to have political centralization. Iraq under Saddam Hussein was hyper centralized because somebody got control of the oil wealth. It seems that in Libya, still after more than a decade, nobody's gotten complete control of the oil wealth. And it's puzzling to me why the situation hasn't consolidated more. Does that tell you more about Libya or does it tell you more about the outside powers who themselves have interests in Libya? I think it's a split story there. The common theme between them is a balance of power or nobody is quite as good as they think they are. I mean, Libya under Gaddafi was very similar to Iraq under Saddam. 
everything was completely centralized in Tripoli. Gaddafi constructed a weird balance of power, but he sat at the top of the hierarchy. And still to the day, Gaddafi's administration survives in the sense of the political setup which he had. So all of Libya's oil wealth goes to one central point, and what everybody is fighting over is the central bank of Libya and Tripoli to a lesser extent. The difference is, firstly, in Libya, nobody really has a monopoly on violence. It's very hard to rule through violence alone, and nobody quite has any political savvy to them. The other side is they all have very powerful foreign backers. The most successful militarily of these have been the Turks, as decided in the last war. But you know, when you got the Russians, the French, the Italians, the Emiratis, the Qataris, and the Turks all involved. And the Egyptians. And the Egyptians. I mean, you can go up to 10 countries, really. They all tend to balance each other out to a certain extent, or nobody becomes quite capable of taking it all for themselves. The principal split is between the East and West, a historic split in Libya. Do you think that there might be some wisdom in trying to stabilize that split? Is it important in your mind that Libya be unified again? Yeah, it is. I mean, this concept of formalizing the separation of the country, it pops up in policy circles every couple of years or so. But to me, it doesn't actually solve any problems. You would simply move from a paradigm of a civil war to a paradigm of two nation states fighting with each other. Because there wasn't many things that Gaddafi did right during his time in charge, but one of the things he did is that he united the country through infrastructure. So Libya's oil infrastructure, Libya's water infrastructure, electricity infrastructure, it spans the three regions, the west, the east, and the south. And so firstly, if you were to formalize a division, it becomes very difficult to draw the border, because obviously each side would want to take as much of the oil as possible for themselves. And secondly, it would be very hard to separate that infrastructure. So it would take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of acrimony, and you wouldn't really achieve anything. So it seems like a red herring to me. The UN has long focused on trying to get a national electoral process underway. To your mind, what will elections do and what will elections be unable to do? People like to look at elections like a silver bullet, like you will just have a vote and then everything will be fine afterwards. Think if we want to be more sanguine and apply the lessons of the last 12 years, elections are very important for two things. Firstly, is that it allows Libya to move beyond the current political infrastructure that is created. Libya's political system, its two parliaments, its two governments, is essentially a hodgepodge of agreements that have been formed and, you know, semi-constitutional documents that have been created over the past 10 years. And it has created an environment of corruption and stagnation. And what Libyans are desperate to do and what really needs to be done for any kind of political progress to happen is to just do a clean sweep to create a new political system, a more functional political system. And that brings us to the second point of what elections might hopefully achieve is to create some kind of a roadmap for the country. So a new election would offer the opportunity to create a mandate for any future government which is elected, which allows some clarity in a sense of, okay, what would be like a government to achieve? Given that Libya is still in transition, you have a few key jobs like unifying the country, finalizing a constitution, holding a next round of elections, and then you can work backwards from there to create the political setup you need. Some people have told me that Libya needs a whole new political class. 
But I'm not sure how we get to having a new political class. And I'm not sure how we get to having politicians who are different from the existing politicians slash warlords in Libya. Do you see any way toward changing the mix of people who are involved in politics and taking power away from warlords and giving it toward people who are interested in ideology and platforms and policy and things like that? I mean, really, it's got to be a gradual process. All these guys are right. Libya desperately needs a new political class. And the events of the past week have shown that more clearly than ever before. But it's a bit hopeful or naive to believe that you can just get there in one hop, which is why I speak of the importance of a government mandate and some kind of sense of direction, not only to guide Libya's political process, but to constrain whoever wins that election. Because it's highly likely that the MPs or whoever wins the next election will be somewhat worse than the MPs who won the previous election. They will be those who have become either more successful at corruption or more successful at violence. And we see a lot of militiamen starting to prepare for a political campaign. So the only way we can really hope to keep improving and not slide backwards instead is to have a very clear mandate for this government, a very clear set of goals, and then to create an atmosphere of public pressure and international support to ensure those goals are being hit and being worked towards. And then gradually, you know, you can have baby steps towards improvement. So let me ask you about the international piece. The UN has been very involved in Libya for many years, increasingly under criticism, increasingly considered to be ineffectual, ineffective. You've written before about the possibility that other parties might come in. Can you talk a little bit about the role of international institutions, international players coming into Libya, how acceptable they are to the different parties and what they should be doing and how they can move things in a positive direction. Ironically, much like how the Libyan political system is very messy, the international system that's meant to constrain, to control, to guide the Libyan system is, I think, equally messy. Nominally speaking, at least, everything is supposed to be channeled through the UN support mission in Libya and the UN special representative. In reality, the UN support mission has been tremendously hampered over the years by one of two problems that it seems to bounce between. Either you have a great SRSG who's got a vision and wants to this achieve something. This is a special representative of the Secretary General. Yeah, sorry, just to clarify. So either the special representative is great dynamic and so on, but none of the countries that are supposed to be supporting them are supporting them indeed, only in word. And so they are continuously undermined until their plan fails and they're driven out, or in the case of poor Dr. Hassan Salame, his health deteriorates to such an extent he needs to leave for his own sanity and livelihood. The other side is that you have a modicum of international cohesion, fatigue with Libya's instability and willingness to change something. And I think we saw that most recently, you know, in 2022. And then you get an SRSG who's almost like the UN version of a company man. Abdullah Batali, the guy who's there now, he's there to do a job, he's there to tick boxes. He talks about the need to, to convene, to have a dialogue, to have a political process. But you don't see much activity or action on the ground until the international community either get bored and refocus on a different country or they just try their own policies instead. And so we end up in a scenario whereby individual states drive the situation on the ground, usually towards their own ends. And in the last 10 years, at least, it's never been in a positive direction for Libya. So I want to ask two related questions. First, who do you think 
the principal international actors in Libya should be and how they should be organized? Well, I mean, frankly speaking, in mid-2022, so this time last year, or maybe just before this time last year, I was really happy because we didn't have a special representative in place. So it meant that for the first time in maybe 10 years, all of the main countries involved kind of had to own up to their own Libya policy. They didn't have any UN to hide behind and to just come out and say, well, we support the UN process. And so it was a lot easier to work with them. And it was a lot easier to push towards some kind of a new, coherent, cohesive policy. And they had their own mechanism. They called it the P3 plus 2 plus 2, which in typical diplomatic terms is not the catchiest name. But it essentially meant the three permanent members of the Security Council involved, who are the USA, the UK, and France, and then two additional Europeans, the Italians and the Germans, who had hosted the Berlin process previously. And then after that, two of the most prominent regional actors involved, so Turkey and Egypt. And this process actually made sense to a certain extent, because if you could get agreement between them, even a majority decision between them on a way forward, they had enough gravity and push in the country between them to actually implement that policy. When you either start to grow the group from there or shrink it into one or two countries, then interests start to get involved. Either the group becomes too unwieldy, like the UN support mission, or the group becomes too driven by the national interests of only one capital, which is also problematic. So there are other actors. Russia is an important actor, and Libya has been. The UAE, as you mentioned, is an important actor. Could you just help us understand what both Russian and Turkish national interests are, the extent to which they overlap in Libya, the extent to which they're different? The UAE's interest in Libya, I was in the UAE earlier this week, and people said, well, it's just about supporting Egypt. But my understanding is it's all nuanced, and it's not just about supporting Egypt in the minds of many. So these are countries that I think a lot of people would say, I don't understand why they care about Libya, except they do care about Libya, and they are consequential in Libya. All of these countries have kind of layers to their policy and to their interests in the country. And Abu Dhabi seems as good a place as any to start. The UAE were one of the initial interventionists in Libya from as far back as 2011, the days of the revolution. NATO intervened from the skies, and it was Emirati and Qatari special forces on the ground who helped the revolutionary actors become coherent fighting units. And the Emirates has a host of different ideological, economic, and regional political interests in Libya. I think if we start with the ideological, they've largely satisfied that at this point. They greatly feared the Arab Spring, and Libya was the, the worst representation of that, because from their point of view, you had a country with a huge oil wealth and a small population who suddenly pushed to become a democracy, but also started asking questions of their rulers and saying, what right do our rulers have to decide on our behalf how our oil money is spent? And there was a strong strain of political Islam in Libya, which has become quite sensitive for the Emiratis. Yeah, I believe that the specter of political Islam and fighting Islam was always a very useful dummy or boogeyman for the Emiratis and the Egyptians to put out in front in to distract from what essentially is a war on democracy in the region. The language of fighting Islamism is a lot more palatable to the Western world, and it's a lot smoother an excuse to use as to why you would intervene, even intervene militarily in countries, and to say, well, I don't actually like the idea of democracy over there. 
because in many of these countries, especially like Libya, the political Islamic opposition, the Muslim Brotherhood, is not the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. They are not as coherent, as powerful, as big and organized an organization. But they were the only political opposition there. With enough time, they would have been voted out of office or they would have been watered down, as we saw in Tunisia. And so I really think it was more about stopping that conceptualization of democracy. But I think for the Emiratis, after the last 10 years in Libya, they've gotten a bit tired. I mean, the dream of democracy is clearly dead. Their initial sponsor of Khalifa Haftar is clearly not as competent as they would have liked him to have been or as effective either at governing or at being able to control the country as a whole. And I think with the last round of UN government picking, for want of a better term, with the process which they hosted in 2021 to organize a new unity government, I think they found in Abdul Hamid al-Dabeba, the prime minister who came out of it, somebody who they could work with, somebody through which they could satisfy their economic interests in the country, whilst realizing that the political situation is beyond their control and probably beyond anybody else's control for now. And so we've seen the Emiratis be a lot more active in trying to make unity governments between the Beba and the Haftar family or his children, investing in economic opportunities. And again, you see this interest from the Emiratis in ports and in the logistical space that connects. Ultimately, the UAE is a middle ground between China on one side and the Atlantic Ocean on the other. So you see that economic vision from them. But on the ground, the Emiratis have had to surrender a lot of control over military activity to the Russians. And that started during Haftar's war on Tripoli in 2019-20. to 20. The Emiratis threw everything in support of Haftar. There was tens of billions worth of support, and he was incapable of making progress until the Wagner Group arrived on the front lines. And I think then there was a realization by the Emiratis that this is what the Wagner Group are good at doing, so they can pull back and save a lot of money and let the Russians lead on that front. And the Russians really took it and ran. I don't think they were very loyal allies to Haftar in that sense. Once the Turks intervened, I think they realized their game was up, and they moved to secure their own interests in the country, which is to maintain control over Libya's assets, its oil assets in particular. And you could see in the weeks leading up to the end of the war when Haftar's army was going to collapse, Wagner forces started to leave the front lines and they moved towards Libya's oil fields and Libya's oil installations to be able to dig in and secure them. And the other side of this is to maintain Libya's division, to create a sense of chaos, but also a lack of unity that allows for having two different sides, allowing Russia to play sides off of one another, maintaining an environment of a lack of control, which they happily exploit to facilitate a lot of their shadow economic activities, mainly smuggling and, and figuring out ways to support Bashar al-Assad and connecting those two shadow economies in eastern Libya and in Syria. There is this balance now between Turkey and between Russia, and it's based on this economic geopolitical balance. When the Russians abandoned Haftar, they drew the new front lines or the new division of the country in the city of Sirt, which is in central Libya. And, you know, as much as people say that there was a ceasefire negotiated between the Libyans, in reality, there was a ceasefire negotiated between Presidents Putin and Erdogan. And that is what made the peace in Sirte. It's what's kept the peace in Libya since. And Libya has become another kind of peace on the chessboard between them. If we include Syria, Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh, and now Ukraine as well. 
The Turks, like the Russians, they have their own economic interests in the country. I think they also have geopolitical interests, like the Russians and like a few other states, actually. Libya, given its geographical position, is a very useful launchpad for other Africa policies. We see the Russians use Libya as the African logistics hub of the Wagner Group. And I think initially Turkey had similar plans to use Libya as a launchpad into the Sahel, but also into East Africa. The more unique driver for Turkey's intervention was the situation in the Eastern Mediterranean. Turkey has this vision in terms of its own national security of challenging Greece's claims to the waters around Greek islands and also the vast oil and gas fields that are underneath. And Libya became a very useful partner to kind of legally challenge that claim. They created their own maritime boundaries with Libya. They found an ally to back up its claim that there are different ways to draw these maritime boundaries. And they found a new energy partner. I think the way the Turks envision their future partnership with Libya is that Libya will provide them the right to start drilling for oil and start drilling for gas and try to help Turkish energy independence in that way. So as you can see, it's it's a huge overlapping of kind of geopolitical, economic, ideological interests from all involved, as well as just simply playing to the moment and being an opportunist. And it feels a little bit like these countries which are not part of the P5 in the UN seem to have larger interests, seem to have greater ambitions for Libya than larger countries in the world. I mean, I think in some of the members of the B5 happily piggybacked on the activities of the Emiratis or the Turks. And so in the modern day where, you know, Western states don't like to get their hands dirty in public, I think the interventions of a lot of these other non-P5 states are useful partners for them, you know, those who are willing to get their hands dirty to create facts on the ground that they once hoped that they could take advantage of. But I think now if they look back on the last 10 years, all they'll see is that it fermented more chaos and it took all of them further away from their interests. Let me go from the international to the national. Libya had about $22 billion in oil revenues last year. And while the revenues are handled by the government in the West, 75% of the oil is pumped from areas controlled by the government in the East. Do you think there are ways to handle oil revenues differently that will help Libya get to a political settlement? Absolutely. We spoke earlier on about how the Central Bank of Libya and Tripoli is a prize for everybody to fight over. And I think that's largely because of how the oil money is collected and then distributed, makes that a prize for everybody to fight over. Libyans believe that they have a right to the oil wealth, that the oil wealth is their right. But how they conceptualize that right or accessing that right is through government jobs, through being able to access government tenders. And that creates a system of corruption and of power in the country, whereby he who can hand out government jobs becomes powerful. And so it structurally creates the dysfunctional state that we have today. And there have been teams of Libyans in more peaceful times who worked on kind of new ways for Libyans to conceptualize their right to the oil wealth and their ability to access it. There's the idea of a sovereign wealth fund, much like how other oil-rich states have or the idea of even a universal basic income. And if you can find a platform like that, which suddenly equalizes Libyans as citizens and gives them rights as citizens rather than by where they come from in the country, then I think you can undercut a lot of the insecurities that 
drive conflict and that allow these kind of greedy people sitting in the elite to keep fermenting conflict. I want to turn to perhaps the most internal issue, which is the floods that have devastated Derna in the last week. Why have they been so destructive? When we were talking earlier, you said as much as half of the city may have been washed away. Yeah, this is the very real legacy of decades of negligence towards maintaining infrastructure, because those who are responsible for maintaining that infrastructure would rather simply make money through corrupt government tenders instead of performing the job. So what happened in Derna, just to explain firstly, is that there were two dams higher up the mountain, which kind of regulated water flow into the the valley that led down to the sea. And Derna sat at the bottom of that valley. Because of the Hurricane Daniel, the dams filled up, causing the dams to break, and a huge force of water just rushed down. I think some local scientists have, have calculated the force as being greater than that of the atomic bomb in Nagasaki. And they talked so, about a wall of water that was more than 20 feet high. Absolutely. And it washed entire districts of the city straight into the sea. And there were warnings last year by a Libyan hydrologist that the dams required urgent maintenance or any case of flooding could have disastrous conflict. They were ignored. Even in the build-up to the storm, the authorities knew it was coming. The gates of the dams weren't opened, even though they knew that it could create problems. Civilians and senior civilians in the city were calling for an evacuation, but the military administration refused them that right of evacuation because they wanted to stay in control of the situation. And so you can see these kind of failures of decision-making. I mean, even up to an hour before the dams burst, the local Ministry of Water Resources was issuing statements on its Facebook page saying that the dams are fine and anybody worrying about them is just spreading fake news, essentially. It's a natural disaster, but it's a man-made catastrophe because there were very real instances of political negligence, of corruption over doing their jobs, and of contempt for the people that created this scenario. What kind of opportunities does this disaster create and what kinds of enduring challenges does it create as we look toward Libya's future? Libya has been a failing state for a long time in the sense that infrastructure is not maintained government services are not provided, and things are steadily degrading. What's happened now in eastern Libya is that it's no longer a steady degradation. Overnight or over two nights, the quality of the road network, the electricity network, the water network has gone down significantly. And you have extremely valid doubts and concerns that the current authorities will care, let alone do anything to bring that back up to scratch. So it reduces the society of Libya, it reduces the functionality of Libya as a state, and I think that those challenges will endure. The opportunity or the hope that I think comes from this for many people is that it might be the driver for political change. There is shock, there is grief, but there is real rage amongst Libyans from all over the country that this was allowed to happen. And the clumsiness and the callousness of Libya's politicians and elite class is only stoking that rage higher. Libya's parliament, which, you know, in times of a crisis is supposed to remain a continuous session, did not even meet until yesterday. And when they met, the speaker of the parliament spent quite a while actually telling off the Libyan people, saying that you shouldn't be blaming us for what happened. You are being very unfair to us that this is an act of God. Then their one move was not to create a crisis committee or 
or show any kind of leadership or organization for the relief effort, their one decision was to create a new fund of 10 billion dinars for Derna's reconstruction to be managed by the Speaker of the Parliament. So people are furious because they see the same callousness and the same corruption just being thrown back into their faces. Whilst people are still washing up on the shore on a daily basis, morgues are still overflowing, the relief work has barely started, let alone finished, and they are already planning their corruption. At the same time, the military of Haftar, which is, is to blame for so much of this, is, is trying to dominate the scene. There are reports coming in that aid convoys from Western Libya, from Southern Libya, are being stopped, having the aid taken off them by Haftar's military because the military have to be seen to be the ones who are distributing the aid. And so, yeah, there is a lot of anger, there is a lot of resentment and frustration. And the question is whether this can generate enough of a popular outrage that these people feel like they have to resign, because what is being called for is that everybody should resign, from the president down to the mayor whether they will succeed in that or whether, you know, these politicians do what they do best and they ride out the storm whilst the the military in eastern Libya and the security services in western Libya just start arresting the dissenters and rounding them up and preventing any protests from forming and so on. Time will tell on that one. But there is a real hope that this can finally create the push for change that Libyans have called for for a long time. Well, we'll have to have you back to see how that all evolves. Tarek Mgrisi, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you for having me on. Let's talk about Libya's response to Storm Daniel in a broader regional context. How do natural disasters challenge governments? And in turn, how do governments capitalize on disasters? As Tark suggested, there's a way in which disasters almost always make governments look bad initially. And there's a lot of criticism of the inadequacy of the response. This isn't just limited to Middle Eastern governments. Look at the criticism of the government's response in, in Hawaii with the wildfires. It's a common refrain. Governments can get ahead of the response. They can demonstrate the ability to reconstruct. But there are also ways in which governments and non-governmental groups skim off from the response. Suddenly, there's a lot of support coming in. We see this in Syria, where Syrian forces sometimes seem to tap in to some of the aid going to areas they don't control. We have sometimes seen government agencies, favored government contractors, benefiting from the response. And over time, sometimes both the international response and the domestic response can end up supporting elements that support the government or support the government. People are willing to accommodate some of that as long as the response is adequate. And the challenge comes when you've had a disaster and five years later, the area is still a disaster. There's a sense that there are people who got wealthy but the area hasn't recovered. And that's where you really find the seeds of opposition as a consequence of disruption. Yeah, I think there are several groups who often try to capitalize on something like a natural disaster. And as John said, this certainly happened in Syria, where the regime used the earthquake 
to try to advance its normalization and to build ties with countries that had until then really been very unwilling to have relations with the government and to sort of depict this as a turning point. And to quite a large degree, I think the regime has been successful in that regard over the last six months or so. But there is always the danger as well that people will really see this as the government's fault. I think Tarek said it quite eloquently when he said that the floods in Derna are a natural disaster, but a man-made catastrophe. And I think it can highlight not only kind of weaknesses in government, but also some of the corruption that is endemic in more fragile parts of the world. As John said, in Syria, there were certainly cases where the Syrian army and the regime had been funneling aid off. And I heard about this on a personal level. I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in Damascus, and he said to me that in the aftermath of the earthquake, he'd been involved in trying to send aid up to the northwest where most of the damage was, and that the relative of his had witnessed this aid being confiscated by soldiers. Now, this is something that our program that Natasha Hall, our colleague, has focused on a lot. But for him, he had not heard very much about this during the conflict, and it was really shocking for him to see it. And there are times when these natural disasters can really lead to opposition movements. One example outside the region is Bangladesh. And John and I worked on a project a few years ago that looked at independence movements. And in what was then East Pakistan, there was a truly devastating cyclone in 1970. It killed hundreds of thousands of people and just a couple of months later, a pro-independence party swept the parliamentary elections, and this really accelerated the push for independence that then resulted in the state of Bangladesh. So I think for governments, certainly governments in fragile or contested environments, there's a fear that opposition groups will capitalize on this to try and push forward with their projects. It's interesting because I agree with you, Will, more often than not, it seems that overall, regimes might face some sort of backlash for not having an adequate response to these disasters. For example, the King of Morocco is currently facing backlash from his own citizens for not accepting aid from Algeria and France after the earthquake. Why do some leaders refuse aid despite reputational costs? So to be generous, you can say in a disaster situation, the situation is fraught and often very chaotic and accepting aid from potentially dozens of international actors would be very difficult to coordinate and that it might actually add to some of the logistical challenges when perhaps the government has quite limited capacity to deal with the situation as it is. I'd say that's on the generous side. Very often, though, of course, these situations are really politicized. So in Morocco's case, I think Morocco either outright refused or just ignored offers of help from both France and Algeria. Now, I think that is certainly a political choice. And so certain regimes have a fear that some of their adversaries, or at least that other international actors, will capitalize on this to make themselves look good in a way that will then make the government look bad. We saw this in Lebanon as well after the port explosion, not a natural disaster, but, you know, a huge disaster. 
Macron, the president of France, then visited Beirut and was really celebrated in the streets of Beirut. There was photos of crowds cheering for him. I think that is something that a lot of regimes very much do not want to see happen, that another actor could come and could gain that kind of popularity boost. And to add, that there's a fear sometimes that hostile countries will not only seek to enhance their political standing in the, the affected country, but that they'll undermine things, they'll insert intelligence agents. I mean, this is always an issue when the United States tries to help Iran after a natural disaster, and it's happened several times. The Iranians think that, well, there must be a catch. There must be an effort to inject the CIA into this, to undermine Iran, because you know, there's a sense that that's part of the broader strategy. So I think that's also an element that countries that feel besieged feel that their enemies, rather than wanting to help them, will actually try to defeat them. And so it's better to just be more cautious. I was struck by Tarek's comment that he was actually excited the UN mission in Libya had been sidelined because it was forcing other countries to come out from behind the UN shadow and clarify their own policy responses. In 2011, the US government talked about leading from behind in Libya and letting European countries take the lead. Should the US government take a larger role in the disaster response, or should it seek to hold back? I think it's gonna be hard for the US government to take a real leading role in Libya, but I wonder if there are things the US can do to try to assert itself a little more strongly. As we talked about throughout the interview, Libya's really been adrift. And I wonder if there's a way the U.S. can use this to catalyze its role in Libya. You have others like Russia, Turkey, France, Italy. It feels like other countries with differing views have really been sustaining the divisions in the country. And I do wonder if there's a way, because the U.S. is better at organizing multilateral things, than other countries are. I do wonder if this is an opportunity for the U.S. to take a more coordinating role and for that coordinating role to spill over to some other aspects of Libya policy. It definitely will be interesting to see how the U.S. government responds to this disaster and other natural disasters in the future. Thanks so much for joining me, John and Will. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.